वसुदेवसुत कंसचाणुरमर्दनम देवकनंदम कृष्ण वंदे जगद्गुरु वी आर स्टडिंग द सेकेंड चैप्टर ऑफ द भगवद गीता एंड ऑफ द थ्री ग्रेट थीम्स ऑफ द सेकेंड चैप्टर फर्स्ट इज ऑफकोर्स द मोस्ट इम्पॉर्टेंट थिंग सेल्फ नॉलेज हु एम आई वॉट एम आई वाई इज दैट मोस्ट इम्पॉर्टेंट बिकॉज दैट इज द क्लेम ऑफ वेदांत वेदांत इज ऑल अबाउट दैट द क्लेम इज इफ वी ट्रूली नो हु और वॉट वी रियली आर एंड दैट इज देर इज नो मिस्ट्री अबाउट दैट वी आर द आत्मन वी आर ब्राह्मण वी आर वन विद गॉड विच एवर वे यू पुट इट द डिविनिटी विद इन अस वेन वी नो दैट वेन ऑल आवर प्रॉब्लम्स विल बी सॉल्व सॉल्व अगेन बी केयरफुल सॉल्व मीन्स वी ट्रांसेंड दोज प्रॉब्लम्स वी रियली फाइंड द फुलफिलमेंट दैट वी आर सीकिंग फॉर ट्रांसेंडिंग सफरिंग एंड अटेनमेंट ऑफ फुलफिलमेंट वी फाइंड दैट वेन वी रियलाइज हु और वॉट वी ट्रूली आर सो दैट इज सेल्फ रियलाइजेशन The second great theme was, all right, self-realization. That's great. What do I do with with my life? I have a life, a job that I have to do. Uh, so how do I uh, handle that? Please um, be here. Come. Karma yoga is the second great theme of um, the Bhagavad Gita. How to transform our daily actions into uh, into spiritual practice. to convert our karma into karma yoga and then the third theme which is going on right now arjuna asked the question what is it like to be enlightened what is it like to be enlightened how do i know that i'm enlightened or more realistically how do i know that i'm progressing towards enlightenment what are the practices that i should um that i should do in my life these are all implied in his question the actual questions he asked were four what is it like to be enlightened he says what is the enlightened person like in samadhi when it's absorbed in that ultimate reality within what is it like and three questions about how is it like what is it like for that enlightened person when that person interacts with the world with the rest of us so basically enlightenment with eyes closed and eyes open with eyes open uh, um how does this person sit how does this person the enlightened person speak how does this person move around it seems to be very simple questions but as we saw last time they are there are deeper meanings in each of these questions um note the word used for enlightenment here neither arjuna nor krishna is use, saying enlightened uh, they are using a term sthita pragya stabilized wisdom settled wisdom a very well chosen term because as we proceed along the path of vedanta we very soon if you put a little bit of attention to it and stay with it for a certain time you will begin to get it we we have a feeling that all right i get it what you are saying and this is great wonderful so a a beginning a flicker of wisdom comes but that's not stabilized immediately the question comes and this question has come here so many times I get it when I'm here but when I'm out there when I go back home when I'm t- <laughs> um in my job in my family and then I seem to lose the wisdom that I have gained it, it doesn't seem to change my life I'm still suffering I'm still reacting the way I used to react so how can we make this wisdom stabilized sthita pragya pragya means wisdom what wisdom wisdom about who we are what I am the atman sthita means Uh, stadium means stability it doesn't come and go it you will not say anymore that uh, i got it but now i'm confused again i got it but when somebody was rude to me i just lost it <laughs> i got it but when somebody pulled in ahead of me and took the last available parking i i was deeply deeply unhappy so uh, i cannot honestly say i am really at peace and quite quite happy um so stability once we have that stability we will not complain in that way in fact we will not complain at all as i say 
One big problem of enlightenment is you lose the right to complain. Now, we'll, we were looking at Sri Krishna's answer. Verses 56, 55, 56, 57. In 56, Sri Krishna uses a phrase. Vitaraga Bhayakrodha. Those are books you can see in the verse 56. Vitaraga Bhayakrodha. What is, what is it like to have this stability in wisdom? This person has transcended. Vita means transcended, gone. Not that the person has gone. What has gone is Raga. This attachment. Bhaya. Fear and anxiety. Krodha. Anger. So one has, this person has forever gone beyond these things. Now this is worth thinking about. Especially when we ask, how do I know that I am progressing in spiritual life? These are the indicators. Ragaha. It's very important. Ragaha. Ragaha here. Not the Bengali Raga. Raga means uh, anger in Bengali. Uh, here Raga means attachment. Attachment. From which comes Viraga, detachment. Vairagya, the dispassion, which a monk is, is supposed to be, ha, supposed to have Vairagya, dispassion. That Raga is attachment. So attachment and is transcended attachment. Attachment to what? What kind of attachment? Attachment to persons and things and places, anything. You know, and why do we have this? It's because we think, we feel, we don't think, we are sure. I am incomplete. Um, there are places, those who have s empty chairs next to you, raise your hand. Yes, so anywhere, you can just sit. Go sit. We feel that I'm incomplete. And this person will make me complete. This job will make me much better, much happier than I am. This, this food or this place or whatever it is. Relationships, gadgets, uh, accomplishments, ragaha. It's a very big factor in our life. And this becomes our project in life. Not one, one after another after another. This is the driving force of samsara. The two interesting places I lived in is Manhattan here, and uh, before this was Hollywood. So the the raga, the pull of the world. Here, somebody said in, in, in Hollywood, you are successful if, you are, if you're glamorous, if you have made it. I saw young people coming. And uh, their whole thing is, how do I get into the movie industry? And some, doesn't have to be an actor. It could be a, a script writer, something like that. And that's the goal. And the idea somewhere deep inside, there's nothing wrong with that, see. But what is the problem is the deep inside is the expectation if I get that, then I'll be fulfilled. I will be happy. No. Unfortunately. So that is one. And here it's, it's uh, you're successful in Manhattan if you're rich. So the same kind of young person comes here hoping to make a million bucks. Again, nothing wrong with that. Except one thing. <clears throat> Underlying that is the deep feeling that if I get that, I'll be fulfilled. If I do not have that, I'm a loser. No, absolutely not. And how do you know? Evidence, we just simply ignore the evidence of our own eyes. Throughout history, throughout, just see the people you think who have made it, ask them. Are they happier that they have made it? Yeah, in one sense, yes. And are you fulfilled now what you expected? No. Not at all. Now I want something else. Or more of that. Or a variety of that. Now I'm, I've got a film. Now I want a second film. Now I want an Oscar. Or something like that. I want, I've got a million. Now I want 10 million. That seems to be the next step. Rat race. Ragaha. Somebody said rat race. If you win the rat race, you're still a rat. <laughs> And it won't let you get off, get off the race because you have the deep feeling, especially in this country, where it seems, uh, I, it took me some time to understand, coming out from India, 
that it's bad to be poor. It's not. There's something wrong with me if I'm poor. There's nothing wrong with you. Economists, sociologists all show. Yes, of course one should be up and doing, trying one's best to attain what is good, what you think is good in life. But just because somebody is poor, it's not that the person is, is a worse person than the person who is rich. Often it's the other way around. But <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a lot to do with karma. Um, our wishes are usually fulfilled if we have a lot of good karma to back it up. And uh, bad karma often leads to a lot of struggle and unhappiness in life. But raga, the fundamental thing is raga means this grasping. This will make me happy. The enlightened person doesn't have that. Why not? Because the enlightened person realizes I am the Atman. Where does raga come? If I am this body, if I am this mind, this body-mind complex and a tiny being among so many other beings, then I am conditioned just like everybody else. And I'm programmed. This is the way you go and this is how you will be happy. But if I'm not, this, this little body is not my entire story. It's a page in the book which I'm reading. I really know, not just as rhetoric, but I really know as a fact that I'm the Atman, that I'm an immortal soul, I'm the spirit, whatever you call it. The birth of the body is not my creation. The aging of the body is not my aging. And the death of the body is not my death. If I know that, yeah, if I see that I am infinite, that I have no, nothing that there is in this world which can give me. Vivekananda said, this mud puddle of a world. There's nothing here that it can really give me. Nothing here really will, will fulfill the want that I have within. The want that I have within will be fulfilled by self-knowledge. Or God, for those who are devotionally oriented, we speak of a God-shaped hole in the human psyche. Especially in the last two, three hundred years, when people have stopped believing in large numbers in religion. So there is a kind of, so God is gone, but not gone, we think God is gone. But uh, we have this, this uh, gap this hunger, unsatisfied within, what will ful uh, fulfill it? And we are trying, raga, we are trying to fill, it, fill up this deep want within us. There are hopes that one day art would supplant religion. So art is the new religion. And you are, here you are, one of the places in the world which is the peak of that kind of thinking. You have the museum mile here. and So art. Or some, some kind of social project, socialism, communism, capitalism, that becomes the passion. Or nationalism. So, life for God, no, 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 that's outdated. Life for my nation. So that becomes the new idol to worship. We tried, all of these were tried. Science, ecology, nature, the gender wars. We tried all of that. And all of them have roles to play. But will it satisfy you finally? When you get what you want, will it, will it satisfy you? No, it won't. And you sort of know that it won't. It's just one more thing. So Ragaha, the enlightened person doesn't have this. So the impulse to act is not to fulfill a lacuna within, our, within myself, but the impulse to act is out of duty or what is good for others. Or as a free offering of love. That's the enlightened person's perspective. Because we have this uh, ragaha, the result is next bhaya, fear. Fear. What is fear? First of all, the things which will fulfill me. I have a fear of not getting it or a fear of losing it. The people, the job, my health, my good circumstances, which are things are going nicely, immediately fear is there that very soon it won't go nicely. And it won't. <laughs> but that's just being realistic. Somebody said, who is a pessimist? The person who sees the long dark tunnel ahead is a pessimist. Who is an optimist? The person who sees the light at the end of the long dark, the long dark tunnel and the light at the end of the long dark tunnel. But who is a realist? The person who sees the long dark tunnel and the light at the end of the tunnel and the next long dark tunnel ahead. This is the very nature of samsara. So fear, fear is ever present. For the, for the worldly person, fear is ever present. 
those who think I'm only a body and mind, this little being. Fear is inevitable. All kinds of fears, anxieties. The, I was reading Ernst Becker's classic book, The Denial of Death. He says, the prime motivating factor in um, human life is the terror of death. We, at one level, we are afraid. Everything that we, we are working towards, everything will be wiped out. Everything, time will come and wipe out everything. Uh, our, uh, so, so whatever we, we hold dear, including this very body, including our, the knowledge that we have gained, uh, the, everything will go. Time will erase everything. So this, this thing we know deep inside and we are ter terrified of it. Becker, Ernst Becker says. And so what is the result? He says the result is a deep denial of this. Of course he's a psychoanalyst, Freudian. So he would say deep denial, we suppress it. We suppress it. We don't think about it. If people say a deep fear of death, no Swami, I'm not really afraid of death. And Becker would say, aha, suppression. <laughs> gotcha. So you can't escape a psychoanalyst. If you say you have a problem, it's of course you have a problem. If you say you have no problem, deeper problem. <laughs> You're suppressing it. Very, seri very serious. Very serious. Now, Freud was once asked that what is your definition of normality? This is, I mean, it seems everybody's abnormal according to... <laughs> but he gave a beautiful definition. Beautiful criterion, normality. He said, normality is the ability to love and do your work. The ability to function in life. You're getting your work done. Not that you're do taking off everything on your to-do list. He obviously had not seen 21st century Manhattan. That is impossible. Nobody can get through all of that. But generally, you are muddling through in life. You're, you're okay. Then it's alright. It's normal. You're functioning. And to love means, can you relate normally with the people around you? Love, affection, relationship. Then if you have these two, normal. But terror, suppress, suppression, he says, uh, Ernst Becker says, suppression. It's a book, it's a dark book, but worth reading. He got the Pulitzer Prize for it. Denial of Death. I think it was in the 1970s. And it, it, the introduction is by the editor who was in a science magazine. He wanted to interview, because the book was so popular, he wanted to interview Ernst Becker, Dr. Becker. And when he called, I think Dr. Becker's wife or somebody said that, he has got terminal cancer and he will die in a few days. Denial of death. But he's willing to give you an interview. And so this person goes and is dying. And this author, Ernst Becker, says, See, now I have a chance to actually practice what I have preached. Now this death is coming up with all the suffering and all the terror. Can I remain steady and pass away with dignity? So that's the introduction to the book. And he did. Um, we suppress it. And then what happens? So terror is there, it's suppressed. And then suppressed, of course, you know, if you know Friday psychoanalysis, suppression is not never total suppression, it will manifest in some way. So then his great thesis, it manifests in what he calls our immortality projects. He says, all of human civilization is a byproduct of the suppression of the terror of death. What is immortality project? Some way of trying to avert the inevitable that I'm going to die. It could be anything from raising a family to founding a business to conquering an, an empire to becoming famous. <coughs> anything, you see, anything you'll put it there. You're an author writing books. Ah, immortality project. You want to live on through your books. Becoming famous, artist, something. Political leader. Religion is the greatest immortality project. We hope that somehow by pleasing God, we'll get some kind of immortality. Uh, trying to live on, it doesn't usually work. If I, nationalism, he mentions nationalism. If I die for my nation, I will be immortal. But that kind of immortality, all of these are also doomed to failure. Because really deep inside us, we don't really want to be immortal like that. They are very poor substitutes for the kind of immortality every one of us wants. What is that? I, here, me, myself, this one must continue to exist. Woody Allen, right in this city, he was asked, 
are you seeking immortality through the silver screen through your movies do you seek to live forever in your movies uh, and your books woody allen said no i want to live forever in my apartment <laughs> <laughs> that is true that's what people want and this enlightened person has realized something which shows that we truly are immortal not just the enlightened person all of us we are and so there is no fear transcends fear in fact the definition of enlightenment is fearlessness true fearlessness not by erasing the universe not by remaining in samadhi and does not see the universe and therefore fear fearlessness no actually experiencing the universe in this universe and completely f- free of fear in this body living this life facing death like every one of us one um, european duke asked swami vivekananda what can you teach me vivekananda said i can teach you how to die not the suicide kind of death when we face our death truly how to die bhayof the emperor janaka when he attained enlightenment his master told him abhayam vai prapto si janakah you have reached you have attained enlightenment o emperor janaka no you have attained fearlessness o emperor janaka he did not say you have become enlightened you have attained fearlessness vivekananda again and again kept on saying be fearless be fearless abhi abhi that is the practice and that is the result krodhah anger anger is a result of of fear when my expectations are thwarted when i feel threatened the result is anger the enlightened person has no fear is completely secure where will anger be is completely he feels one with all with whom will he be angry do you ever get angry with your hands or your feet or your no you don't you are that so you feel if you feel one with everybody with everything whom can you be angry with sometimes saints and sages do get angry but that anger is for the welfare of others maybe they use anger to teach somebody as vivekananda said a fool cannot get angry the one who, who cannot get angry is a fool but the wise person does not get angry vita raga bhaya krodha free of transcending attachment attachment and aversion raga dvesha bhaya the resultant anxiety terror of existence and krodha anger with whom will you be angry when you when all is but one with whom will you blame whom will you praise you are you are one with everybody now next keeping this in mind um we have done verse number 57 it verse number 58 onwards now remember <clears throat> the third question was you thinking what are the first two questions first question how is an enlightened person in samadhi samadhistha second one how does this person speak kim kim prabhasheta how does he speak we have already seen how does this person react when faced with pleasant and unpleasant circumstances how does this person react how does he react verses 56 and 57 you look it up next question third question was how does this person sit the deeper meaning of the question is how does this person withdraw from the world in spiritual practice interiorize why is this question important this is important for us those who seek to stabilize our wisdom if we say that i am beginning to get it i am beginning to understand what is meant by aham brahmasmi i am the witness consciousness i am the spirit how do i stabilize it and manifest it in life manifest in life means in thought word and deed how do i think like that and how is it expressed in my day to day life so swami vivekananda said religion is the manifestation of the divinity already within us he did not say religion i used to think about it if you read vedanta you would say the definition of religion is the manifestation of the the the, the knowledge of the divinity within us or the realization of the divinity within us i am brahman to know that he says no 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 that's not enough one might misunderstand knowing might be like book knowledge knowing might be like an intellectual conviction 
which feels almost like the real thing. But are you able to overcome your problems? Because remember the original proposition, the selling proposition for Vedanta was, you will be able to overcome suffering in life. Can you overcome your own suffering? Can you overcome your own existential angst? Can you attain lasting peace? If you have done that, that is then religion is working for you. Spirituality is working for you. Manifestation of the divinity within. It is the sthita pragya, the one of stabilized wisdom, who can manifest this divinity within. How do you do that? Why can we not do that? What is the practice for that? I am beginning to get it. How can I manifest it in my life? So you understand it's a very crucial problem, crucial question. And it's an advanced question. It's not for the beginner. You just, um, just a minute, Swami. What is Vedanta? And um, this, what is an Atman? <laughs> All right. That's, that's, that's beginning. But this is uh, advanced. How do I see it in life? How do I manifest in life? So the process is called, we have heard this earlier, Nididhyasana. Nididhyasana means re to remain with that clarity, the realization, the knowledge, to remain with that, that insight. Remain with that where? Not only in Vedanta class, but also in, in my life throughout the day, outside the class, inside the class and outside the class. Stay with it, not just in meditation, but in your work, in your recreation, in your leisure hours. To stay with it, stay with this realization. To stay with this realization is Vedantic meditation. Different from yogic meditation. Yogic meditation, you must sit still. You must shut your eyes and withdraw from the world. And then you must concentrate. And there are many techniques for that, yogic meditation. Mindfulness techniques are there in Buddhism. And in um, yoga, so many techniques of meditation are there. Are all yogic concentration approaches. Concentration approaches means cut out the world, concentrate on this. And in Vedanta, you can do that. You can do that. But other than that also, when you are interacting with the world, then also you must do this. Stay with this knowledge. That is, this is called Nididhyasana. The awareness that here is the world, but I am aware of the world. I am the witness consciousness. This is Drishya, the object. I am the Drashta. Body, Drishya, object. I am the Drashta, seer. Mind, Drishya, object. I am the Drashta, seer. The pure consciousness, the real Drashta, the real seer. Not, not the world, not the physical body, not the senses, not the mind, not the intellect. Apart from all of that. In whose light the intellect and the senses and the mind function. That I am. That witness consciousness. The witness of the three states. Not the waker. Not the dreamer. Not the deep sleeper. But I, the one pure consciousness, the pure subject, which appears as the waker and the waker's world which appears as the dreamer in the dreamer's world, which appears as the darkness of deep sleep, I, the unchanging light of awareness. That one. Not the five sheets of the personality. See, all these techniques, they lead to the same thing. The five sheets of the personality. Many of you know what I'm referring to, the different approaches in Vedanta. The Annamaya, food sheet, not this. The Pranamaya, the vital sheet, not this. The Manomaya, the mental sheet, not this. The Vijnanamaya, the intellect, which we are using right now, not this. The darkness behind, beyond it, the restfulness of the bliss sheath, Anandamaya, not even that, Neti Neti. The witness consciousness of all of them, which uses all of them, because of which all of these function. That I am. Whether by the method of Panchakosha Viveka, by the method of Avastatraya, by the method of Drik Drishya, whichever method you like. Multiple methodologies are there. I am that. Stabilize. Stay with it. When we eat food, Brahmaar Param Brahma, we, we chant. Um, many people do not know. That is Vedantic Nididhyasana, Vedantic meditation. Many think it's a prayer for food. To chant it, when what do you do after that? You eat. No. <laughs> you realize that you are Brahman. That is the point of it. What does it say? That what you are offering, the, 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 the actually the ladle by which you offer, Brahmarpanam, that is Brahman. 
the offering that you are making, that is, um, that is Brahman. The, the paradigm is of the ancient Vedic fire sacrifice. So there's a fire, there's a priest, and the chanting of mantras, and the wooden ladle, and the, the ghee offerings, the offerings which are oblations put into the fire, and all this is going on. But what is Vedantic meditation? The ladle is Brahman, Brahma Arpanam. The offering is Brahman, Brahmahavi. The fire into which I offer, Brahmagno, the fire is Brahman. And the one who is offering, Brahmanahutam. I too am Brahman, or the priest is Brahman, whatever you say. Brahmhevatena gantavyam Brahma Karma Samadhina. The one who, who can defy all action. Look at the difference between Vedantic meditation and yogic meditation. Yogic meditation, stop it. Don't start offering things into the fire. Sit straight, breathe like this, close your eyes, concentrate here. That is yogic meditation. Shut out the world. And there's, it's very powerful. It's, but Vedantic meditation is engage with the world. Look what's going on. And everything that is going on, in and through that, notice that one Brahman. So I am Brahman, I am the witness, I am the existence consciousness in which all of this is going on. Brahma Pranam Brahmavi. So this is Vedantic meditation. Nididhyasana. Now, <clears throat> I'm giving all this as an introduction. What Krishna will tell Arjuna here is, in order to practice that Nididhyasana, that's the, that's the key to stabilization. To stabilize your wisdom. The Brahma Pranam Brahmavi says, one who sees Brahman in this way, in every action, that one realizes uh, Brahman. That one becomes a sthita pragya, established wisdom. To do this nididhyasana, there are two conditions. You will see that they are very important. The two conditions are indriya nigraha, control of the sens sensory system. Very powerful psychic energies are involved in the sensory system. And mano nigraha, control of the mind. Control of the sensory system, control of the mind. By mind is include mind, included mind, intellect, uh, memory, all of that. Activities internally. And the sensory system which, which interfaces between you, your mind and the world. Control of these. There are powerful energies involved here. If we do not do that and we try to jump straight to Vedantic meditation, the complaint will be, keep failing, keep getting swept away. I already become angry, I had already said a few curse words. Then I realized, oh, I have to do Brahman meditation. <laughs> what happened? Why did I suddenly lose? <laughs> because the, the foundation has not been laid. Here are the foundations. Verse number 58 to 61. Yada sangharate chayam Yada Sangharate Chayam Kurmangani Vasarvasha Kurmangani Vasarvasha Indriyan Indriyathebhya Indriyan Indriyathebhya Tasya Pragya Pratishthita Tasya Pragya Pratishthita One who can, the, the spiritual practitioner who can withdraw at will the sensory system from the several senses, the five senses from their respective objects at will. That person can practice uh, Vedantic meditation. That person's wisdom is settled. Example, he gives a nice example here. Tortoise. A tortoise, you know, the moment a tortoise is threatened, you can this nicely um, crawling along the beach, the moment it feels scared, what it does is, it quickly, in a flash, withdraws its four feet and its head into the shell. The shell is hard and armored, and it withdraws into the shell, and waits until it thinks that the, that the danger has passed, and then comes out, pokes its head out, and then slowly goes on its way again. Now like that, can we withdraw our senses from, from their contact with the world outside. Why? The reason is, Sri Ramakrishna used to say, that in the beginning of spiritual life, one must construct a fence around oneself. And it's like a little, you've planted a sapling. 
a little flower flowering plant maybe and you've constructed a fence around it if you don't put a fence around it it will be eaten by cows and goats remember is giving an example in india especially indian villages so if you have a little juicy little plant coming up the cow or the goat will come and eat it up here you can see it in the garden the deer come and they eat it up and so on now if you put a fence around it when that plant grows up it becomes a big strong tree uh, sri ramakrishna says you can tie a, an elephant to it and the tree it will not damage the tree similarly in spiritual life at the beginning a fence is put around in your spiritual practices and allowing you to practice this vedantic meditation shravana manana nididhyasana regular vedantic study inquiry reasoning and meditation stay with it and don't be disturbed what are the cows and goats which might come and eat up the tender plant of uh, vedantic wisdom uh, they're doing it all the time they are our own senses these are very powerful eyes the senses are the visual the eyes and their object is form see ears and their object is sound nose and the object is smell skin and the object is touch tongue and the object is taste rupa rasa gandha sparsha shabda uh, shabda yeah so five rupa is form rasa is taste gandha is smell uh sparsha is touch and shabda is sound among them most powerful you see hear and also touch taste also smell maybe not so much the smell is actually connected a lot with the taste also if you have a cold and a blocked nose you find lot of food is not tasteless tasteless and it becomes tasteless so these are all powerful and they have the ability to disturb completely churn up the untrained mind the unprotected mind see one would never think of rummaging around in uh, in the in the garbage the trash cans outside and taking out food and putting it in your mouth it the very thought makes you feel sick and in your tummy will be upset immediately and yet we keep collecting things from the trash cans of the world and pouring them into our minds especially in today's world we pour it into our minds how through the eyes through the ears especially eyes and ears what we see and what we hear and touch also eyes want to see what do they want to see something that is exciting something that's pleasurable and what is pleasurable something that we have conditioned ourselves to think this is nice i want to see it again and again and again ears want to hear that which is pleasurable nice music even more musical than music is praise somebody saying nice things about me let me hear even more spicy than praise is criticism criticism of another person oh very nice to hear <laughs> criticism of myself very annoying to hear desperate but we can't avoid it we are drawn to it what is that person saying about me So, so object things of, of the world we want to hear i know see one monk under whom i was trained um once i was walking with him and there were people around uh, students and the usual path the swami walked that day he said we will walk by this other path i said why those students there they're talking about me he could overhear so he said so the result is i will not walk by that i will not hear what they are saying about me See that control. I do not want to listen. I remember one of the biggest lessons early on in spiritual life I had, not to convey rumors, you know, to convey what, what telling tales. What is that? Gossip. So there was a monk um, in the ashram which I joined who was critical of. the swami under who was in charge of the ashram and then that's that's natural one might say some something or the other but but then this monk um told me 
I was new. I didn't. I hadn't heard such things that you could uh, actually, you know, criticize uh, uh, the, the senior Swami and so on and so forth. I felt very shocked. And then I told another senior monk, you know, this this monk is saying bad things about our Swami. And this other senior monk did not like the first monk, so he immediately got something to. to <laughs> he said, "Come with me. You must immediately report it to the the Swami." <laughs> I was terrified. I'm a newcomer. I mean. <laughs> That's a horrible situation to be in. Um, so I was sort of willy-nilly dragged along to the office of the the the, the Swami, the who was one one who was in charge of the whole ashram, and whom I had the greatest regard for. The one great Swami, one of the. Of course, my guru is. I've got my mantra diksha and all of that from guru, and that's great. Uh, but my training in spiritual life, my initial the stamp which fall comes from this Swami. Now I have to go f- f- for for in front of him and carry tales about another monk. So this other monk says to me, "Tell him, Swami, hear what this novice has to say. Tell him what that that monk said." So this monk has a has a project that I'm going to fix that guy. <laughs> and um, I sort of mumbled out, "No, um, he was saying about you." The moment I said about you, I got one of the worst scoldings of my life I've ever had till now. The moment I said, he said about you, the Swami said, "Stop! I don't want to hear this. Never ever do such a thing. Never carry tales about another person reported to that. Does he want you to tell me this? No." And and he went on. I still remember. <laughs> it's like vivid, and it's, it's one of those times. You know, if you if you love and revere somebody, and suddenly you lose all standing with this person, you feel like you can melt and disappear into the ground. <laughs> You'd rather vanish. He said, "You have encouraged him. Why did he say such thing? You have encouraged him. You are listening to him. You are behind all of this." <laughs> he did it on purpose. He laid it on really thick so that I would never forget that lesson, and I never did. And the other Swami who had dragged me there, he saw that I was getting into trouble and the thing was not going the way he intended it to. And he said, "No, no, Swami, he didn't want to come. Hey, you go, go, leave, leave, leave. Walk out, walk out, go." <laughs> He didn't want it to go very, very far because it could go far in the sense that I could be just thrown out of the monastery. <laughs> so, and that was the the senior Swami's way of teaching. One of the things he would quite freely say, "Oh, you have come to become a monk. You didn't come to become this. Leave outside the gate." So <laughs> that was our, our our terror that we would be thrown out, and we we all want to become monks, and we wouldn't be allowed. He did. I never saw him actually do that literally to anybody, but everybody was scared. <laughs> so hearing, I want to hear gossip about myself, seeing pleasurable things. What I want to see, the in the senses run towards their objects. They run towards their objects. You know. um i remember one monk who had been in in the mountains um for many uh, he had gone from our monastery and he was in the mountains he was doing meditation so in those days the uh, there was no internet or anything like that or tv the newspaper was the source of news and he said he would go daily to a little shop where the shop owner remember it's it's high up in the mountains the shop owner would give him a glass of milk so that he would take for nutrition so one day he had gone down from his hut to that little shop um and he sat down there on the rough wooden bench and there was this other villager who had come with an old newspaper maybe 3 or 4 days old and is reading it and this monk said something drew me like i'm drinking the milk and i looked this way <laughs> You may laugh at it you don't know. You deprive your senses for some time you'll see how much the hunger of those senses increases multiple multiple times. I remember once I was I was very sick and I couldn't eat. If any food was given I would throw up. Now it went on I was on the IV for 15 days and had a very interesting experience. Body sick unable to eat anything even water if I just throw up. Now In my dreams I started dreaming about all the nice things I had eaten. <laughs> When I was a kid I thought I'd forgotten those things. But see how deep they go. Now 
The interesting thing is, it's not a hunger of the body. The body doesn't want it, can't take it. It's a hunger of the tongue, of the sensory system. The hunger is in the mind. The taste is in the mind, not so much in the body. And that's a great insight. It, the body doesn't really need it. It's the mind which needs, uh, it, it's, a, it's a conditioning. Mind also doesn't need it. Swami Turiyanandaji, there's a nice story about him, the disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, who was a strict Vedantin, a very harsh disciplinarian. Um, in Belurmat, the main monastery there, summer is like 110 degrees in the shade with 100% humidity. So you can imagine. Somebody said it's like walking through hot soup all the time. <laughs> so in summer. Now they have a very beautiful, what you call yogurt here. It's like a lassi. Um, and it is very nicely prepared with uh, spices and all. It's very, very tasty, I can tell you that. It's offered to the Lord in the temple and the prasad, the, the, uh, the sacred food which is offered. So every monk gets it by turn. So every summer, if you're a monk, you in, in the main monastery, you'll get it once. And so I've, I've had it, I'll still remember the taste. It's really good. Now, maybe it's just because it's so scarce, maybe that makes it more tasty. Now there's a story. So Amituriyananda, when he was there in the early days of the Belur monastery, it was his turn. Remember, he's a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, one of the senior most monks. He's regarded as an enlightened person. So, but everything goes by rote there. So it was his turn. In the afternoon, the young monk comes with the glass, the delicious thing, and he offers it to him. And the Swami takes a sip and says, take it away. And the monk said, why Swami, isn't it good? Didn't you like it? He said, I liked it, that's why. <laughs> he doesn't need to do that, but it's a, it's a lesson, lesson to us. Jonathan Haidt, who is a psychologist here in the United States, he has a book, The Happiness Hypothesis. Um, there, he raises an interesting question. We have so much positive psychology. If you go to the Barnes and Noble section, so many self-improvement books. There is among the best sellers. Rows and rows of them. Best sellers. And I, uh, and uh, we, why is it not changing our lives? He asked this question. Many of them, they may be anecdotal, they may not be academically rigorous, but they have good wisdom in them. And they all promise, you know, how to be happy in so many days and uh, uh, how to become popular, how to overcome fear of public speaking, how to manage your finances, how to lose weight, how to meditate, anything that you would want in life, everything, all in seven days or three days or 14 days, all. And a and lot, lot of them, they'll give examples, it's worked for this, this and this, that and the other person. But why doesn't it work? Why, our lives, why are our lives not revolutionized by all this wisdom? Why not? It's not its fault. It has worked in some cases. So he gives an answer. And the answer is exactly what Krishna is saying here. He says there, he gives the example of the elephant and the rider. The elephant, you know, Mahut is the one who rides the elephant. The Mahut decides, I will go there. And then guides the elephant there. But remember, the, it will work only if the elephant listens to the mahut. Because the elephant is much stronger than the rider. If the mahut wants to go, go right, and the elephant sees a bunch of bananas in a shop in left, an elephant wants that, there's no power that the mahut can exercise which will make the elephant go right. So, he says, our intellects are the ones which are convinced by arguments. Our intellects. Who attends the seminar? Who I do. It's really your intellect which attends. Who attends a Vedanta class? The intellect which attends. Who reads all those books in Barnes and Nobles? It's the intellect which reads. But who has to do the job? Not the intellect. I read and I'm convinced. Five o'clock morning, get up and do yoga. That's really good. And here are the benefits, page after page. <laughs> I, this is great. I'm going to do it tomorrow. And I put the alarm. Now at 5 o'clock tomorrow in the morning, the alarm rings and it's cold and it's very comfortable under the comforter. And I know that I have a long, hard day ahead. Maybe intellect says, the program, up to get up. 
The body says, it's your program, you get up. I am, I am, I am going to remain under the blanket. I don't care. You never asked me. Did you ask me? I didn't sign up for this. Intellect is like the mahut. It's convinced by arguments and seminars and presentations and books and data. But the elephant, the body, the body, the sensory system, the physical body, they're not convinced. And so there's a struggle and you fail. You fail. Um, versus the mahut, <laughs> he gives another thing, the intellect actually invents excuses. So it's like a deluded mahut. The elephant is going wherever it is going. The mouth says, yes, this is where I wanted to go. <laughs> and Jonathan Haidt says, most of the time we are like that. Where we make excuses for ourselves. So, and he points out, what is the elephant here? He says the body, but especially he says the sense organs. He says, they have an auto, he says they're like, they are autonomous. They're not directly under your control. You can't press a switch and make your eyes, ears, nose, all of them do what you want. He says, no. They have a conditioning and a kind of limited autonomous intelligence. Nowadays we have AI. The things that these our, our gadgets do. So they talk to you. And, and they, they do things. They have a limited kind of intelligence. Our sensory centers, the chakras which you talk about in yoga, they have a limited intelligence. In fact, he says... He gives example, our gut for example, it has its own intelligence. There are a vast amount of nerve, nerves which go there, it's like a nerve center. So when you say gut feeling, you're right, it's the gut which is feeling something. And so it has its, so they have their own autonomous intelligence. And they are not on board with you, the boss up there. So they will pull in different directions and hence all your projects of self-improvement are sabotaged. Unless they are on board. Unless they are on board. And he does not go deep into what can be done. He simply says, what does the elephant respond to? Not lectures, not books, not seminars or TED talks. The elephant responds to only one thing, training. Elephant is a creature of habit. Can you give it good habits through training? That's what the mouth does. Through conditioning, trains the elephant. And conditioning, training takes repetition. So, what Krishna says, the sensory system is very powerful. <coughs> Control the senses. At the very beginning, he says, withdraw the senses from the objects. Be careful. Keep a watch over what you see, what you hear, what you smell, touch. There are things in the world which will throw your mind into turmoil. What kind of turmoil? Raga Dvesha. Attraction, aversion. Anger also is, is a very nice thing to keep, spend time with. You have strong political views. This party or that party, this thing or that person. And, and then what you hear, the news supplies and you get engaged in that. And become angry. This is very bad. Some cause or the other. What about Vedanta, God realization? Oh, forgotten for the time being. <laughs> yes. And it, the, the modern media entrances us. It multiplies the power of our senses manifold. So one must be very careful there. You're sucked in. Somebody said, why is internet browsing and all these things, mobile phone, why is it so attractive? It's designed to follow the movement of your mind. The way the mind operates, that thing responds to it. Your mobile phone is actually more attractive than TV serials of past ages. Which is more attractive than books. Why? A book is linear and only one thing. You have to see and uh, read and think. A TV gives you things to see like a movement, sound, uh, everything is shown to you. You don't have to think much. Your senses are more captivated easily. But even that is linear. You don't have control over the plot. But your phone or computer and all that, that responds to what you want. And that's exactly what we want to do. A mind is at ease, wandering around the way the mind wanders normally. It now wanders in digital, in, on, on the uh, internet, in the World Wide Web. So, one must be careful there. What I see, what I hear, what I touch, what can throw my mind into and engage it? At other than Vedantic Nididhyasana. Sitting in Barnes and Nobles looking at books, 
reading, these two ladies, I sort of overheard, they were next, sitting next, and they're looking at a glossy book. You know what was the subject of conversation between them? Neither was less than 50, they must have been 50s, 60s. This royal wedding had taken place. There's a glossy book on what this, uh, the, the, la- the lady who married the prince, Meghan Markle, yes. What she wore, the dress, <laughs> and they're going on discussing about it, the dress. You see how we're pulled into it. There's nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. (laughs) Another thing is arguments, big thing. Arguments. Never, if you're a Vedantic student, a spiritual practitioner of any kind, don't get into arguments. About anything, especially about Vedanta. (laughs) People become enthusiastic about Vedanta. First thing is, they'll try to pull in others. Especially parents and children. Very nice, Swami. Can you do something for children? I said, no. (laughs) First, you are interested. Imbibe it. That will shine forth and that will do the best job for the children. If you want to. The first thing is they want to make their children enlightened before they are enlightened themselves. (laughs) And then arguments. I'm trying to convince other people. You never will. Even if you win an argument, you have lost. The moment you get into an argument, the result is, some, some, <laughs> one Swami joked. He said, argument is a fire which gives more heat than light. <laughs> so it generates a lot of heat. <laughs> Not so much light at all. So don't get into arguments. It, it, uh, people become angry and worked up. And the moment you do that, if you sit in meditation, if you're a regular meditator, you will see the terrible effect of that on your mind. I like that prayer. Have you heard of the serenity prayer? Lord, give me the strength to, to change the things that, that can be changed, that I can change. Give me the patience to bear those that cannot be changed. And give me the wisdom to know the difference between the two. Often, we, uh, we, are, we slack off where we can actually make changes and make our lives better. We avoid those because it it's difficult to make changes. And we get very worked about, about things. National, international politics and things. Are, uh, which we cannot do anything about really. No concern of ours. You may have an opinion. That's it. And we don't know the difference between the two. So control of the senses. I think I should stop here because... We did only one verse. I was going to do one, two, three, four verses today. <laughs> do you have any question? Because we've run out of time. Yes. When can it take. comes to senses, is there such thing as moderation? Yes. So what does control of senses mean? It means balance, moderation. Do I cut everything off? The Buddha tried it. And the result was, he found that if you deprive your senses um, intensely, he fasted so much that there are these sculptures of the fasting Buddha reduced to a skeleton and the stomach is touching the spine. So it became weak. Yes, in fact one of the commentators here says that control of the senses comes automatically to one who is fasting. Fasting in the sense if we don't eat. And then he says control of the senses comes automatically to one who is sick. If you are sick and not feeling well at all. Then if somebody says, um, uh, want to come and uh, try out this new food place? No, even the thought of it makes you feel like throwing up because you're sick. So the senses become weakened if you're sick, if you, if you fast, things like that. But that is not spiritual. It's not spiritual. The moment this, you become, feel a little good, immediately you're up and doing with 10 times more vigor. So Buddha realized that destroying the sensory system, crushing the sensory system is not the uh, answer. Overindulgence is not the answer. Anything and everything that I want, immediately it should be uh, granted. And we are going towards that kind of a, of a world, especially in the advanced countries, especially a place like, say, Manhattan or in, um, uh, in advanced places like this. What we want, we can now get with one click. 
I noticed one thing here. Uh, Amazon is is yes great at great at delivering things you know but what they what are they greatest at? The greatest at making it easy for you to buy. That's the first thing. Next, of course, delivering the thing to you. So at at a click of just movement of one finger, you can get whatever you want. If you can afford it, you can get it. Now the idea behind it is: if I get what I want, I will be happy. I am not. George Bernard Shaw said, "There are two great disappointments in life: not getting what you want, and getting what you want." Not getting it, obviously, and getting it—that's a deep truth. We have this expectation; it's called the hidden uh, hedonism trap. We have this expectation that by buying this thing, with this relationship, with this gadget, with this vacation, I will be happy. X, Y, Z points of happiness, very happy. And just about every time I do that, I find I get some pleasure out of it, but much less. much less than what was what seemed it promised are you with me so far and this is nature's way this is nature's way uh, our uh, darwinian uh, biologist they, the behavioral uh, biologist they say nature makes you do things in this way it promises a lot of pleasure so that you will do it do what uh, find food uh, find a mate to procreate so that Nature's whole whole thing is life and continuity, and nature will make you do things which will which will serve that purpose. Not nefarious. That's the very that's the nature of nature. It makes you do that. Imagine, suppose, um, this example a historian gave. <laughs> He says that suppose there's a squirrel. It gets a little bit of pleasure by finding a nut and eating it, but much less than what it would have expected. and then so what it what does it do it repeats that behavior but suppose why not why doesn't it get complete satisfaction by satisfying its desire so it imagine a squirrel which finds a nut and eats it and immediately a uh, vedantic bliss blissed out means that squirrel would have a very short life why because it wouldn't want to eat anymore why would it eat very happy and it wouldn't want to find a mate and procreate it wouldn't pass on pass on its genes so the next generation of squirrels will won't get that gene so it will be bred out of it that uh, becoming happy so the very nature uh, is that we will not be happy by fulfilling desires it's something that nature makes us do especially sensual desires so the buddha found moderation uh, he found middle path yeah, the veena if it is the string is slack no music the veena if it is tightened too much the string snaps too much austerity too much indulgence no spirituality is possible middle path middle path is moderation of course buddha's middle path moderation was pretty austere <laughs> <laughs> if you see the rules for the monks buddhist monks pretty austere but moderation in the bhagavad gita also later much later you'll see krishna says for the moderate person yoga will work Yoga bhavati dukkha. Yoga works in destroying suffering. For whom? For the person who is balanced, moderate. Somebody else had their hands up. This funny story about the middle path. We had a very wonderful Swami. I never saw him. His name was Gunati Tananda Maharaj. He was disciple of the Holy Mother. He was a prince of Travancore. He left his uh, princely estate before the British, when the British were ruling. So after independence, all those estates were seized, um, but he belonged to a royal family. But he lived as a very austere monk, and he was the one, from all accounts, the monks who have seen him, they told me. But he was eccentric too. So middle path, he loved the middle path. One day he was knocked down by an auto, an auto rickshaw in in, on the Grand Trunk Road in front of the monastery. They, so they, he was not luckily very injured. They brought him back to the monastery. Swami, what happened? Middle path. He was walking in the middle of the highway. <laughs> it's it's a real story. I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> middle path. <laughs> so not that kind of middle path. Balance. Balance in food. Gita will say. Yukta hara, yukta swapna vabodhasya. Balanced in food, 
moderate in sleep moderate in waking not waking out you know a whole city that never sleeps yes we really need that advice moderate in sleep moderate in waking moderate in recreation a balance with the body and mind are quiet and cooperative then yoga work yoga means this uh, meditation vedantik nididhyasana it will work very good om shanti 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 hari om tat sat श्री राम कृष्णारूपणमस्तु